Hello, and welcome to episode 38 of the Venture Games Podcast. I'm Chris Quaidu, a venture partner at Griffin Gaming Partners, one of the leading gaming-focused VC firms, and content acquisition lead at Andreessen-backed Carry First, the leading African mobile games publisher. Today, I'm joined by a true veteran in the gaming industry, Dean Takahashi, lead writer for GamesBeat. Dean has more than 25 years of experience writing about the games industry, and he has written more than 23,000 articles over that time. Anyone who follows the games industry has almost certainly read one or more of Dean's articles, and I've personally been reading Dean's works for years before I joined the industry and had the pleasure of meeting him. With no further ado, Dean, what's going on? Thank you. That's a very nice welcome and appreciate it. I've been busy myself working away in this industry and uh, I love what I do. Awesome. So mm -hmm. for those folks who somehow are not familiar with you, Dean, mm -hmm. do you mind just walking through your background mm -hmm. and the path that took you to where you are today? Yeah, sure. I grew up in Sacramento. I uh, went to UC Berkeley for college and I was an English major there. Almost veered off into business and so I took some of those prerequisite classes for that, but I was kind of not as excited about it as writing. So I got a summer job while at Berkeley working for the summer program for minority journalists. And I was mm -hmm. like a copy aide that helped them do a weekly new newspaper. And so that sort of got me really immersed in the sort of fun of doing news. And so I kept doing that each summer and then went on to journalism school for a master's degree at Northwestern University mm -hmm. and graduated from that way back in 1987. Got my first jobs in newspapers, working for the Dallas Times-Herald mm -hmm. uh, newspaper there. And one of the first things I had to do my first week on the job was cover a horrible crime story and decided, uh, you know, this is not the, this is not the <laughs> kind of thing that I'm built for. Yeah. <laughs> and so... I was transferred over into the business department where mm -hmm. they needed people mm -hmm. and they were downsizing. They needed people there. And they stuck me on some stories like covering the anniversary of Texas Instruments and the creation of the first microchip. So I started covering tech while there in Dallas and then switched to some jobs in Orange County at the LA Times in Orange County. And I started covering games because there were some folks out in Orange County, California, like uh, Brian Fargo, mm -hmm. who's still in the business today, creating, you know, names like the original F Fallout and the Blizzard people, Mike Morham and Alan Adham. And they started out as Chaos Studios. I wrote the first story on them and then they eventually became Blizzard and, uh, you know, a company with thousands of people. So that, that was fun. That was a start. That was like, you know, so I've been a tech writer for maybe 35 years. Mm -hmm. And I didn't actually get around to covering games as a daily or weekly beat until I started at the Wall Street Journal in mm -hmm. 1996. And so that's about 27 years. Mm -hmm. And then now I've been at VentureBeat for 15 years, always contributing both to our tech coverage on the VentureBeat side and then the games on uh, GameStreet. Got it. And then when you started covering games, what did the media landscape looked like for games specifically. I imagine the coverage wasn't quite as robust as it is today. So what was the landscape like back then? I was on a panel with a really young creator and she was like 20 or so. And I've been 
you know, covering games. And I said, you know, like I grew up in a time when games were for nerds mm -hmm. and, you know, dudes in their basements just sort of being antisocial. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and so they weren't as highly thought of for a long time while I was growing up in that. And she said, you know, for as long as I've been alive, games have been really cool. <laughs> <laughs> we're like, you grew up in a very different time than I did. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, I think, you know, mainstream media was always interested in things like, you know, fast growing businesses, mm -hmm. but they didn't really have a way to understand games. And so I found that just like in tech writing, maybe translating this sort of phenomenon to people who were not familiar with it, like, you know, explaining it to the parents of kids or something mm -hmm. like that. You know, why is Quake so popular as an obsession mm -hmm. among young folks or writing about Doom when it came out and kept people occupied on their computer networks mm -hmm. after hours, because that was the only way you could really play it at the time. And so sort of this translation process of explaining the subculture to the dominant or, you know, mass market culture was always part of the job at mm -hmm. different newspapers that I worked with. And even like, say something like the Red Herring magazine. And in some ways, you always felt like you were walking this line between speaking to gamers like they were 10-year-olds mm -hmm. <laughs> or, or a bunch of dummies, you know, like, why are you explaining what an RPG is to me mm -hmm. or something like that? And then also, you know, trying to convey something to people who didn't play and yet were somehow decision makers about like the fate of games, like, you know, parents or you know, big companies. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one thing I also am particularly personally happy about is the fact that gaming today is so much more mainstream and so much less stigmatized. You know, I'm <laughs> quite a bit younger than you are, but even when I was growing up, you know, like in, in high school, I think gaming was still not nearly as mainstream as it is today. You know, something that like I talked about with a few friends who I knew were gamers, you know, but it's not something that you really like talks to tons and tons of people about. So obviously that's a, a great change I'm happy about as well. But as you were coming up throughout your career, at what point did you start to see this shift towards games becoming more mainstream? And at what point did you start to realize that like, hey, this hobby that I'm really passionate about is actually a big business here? I mean, uh, a lot of it probably coincided more with when I joined VentureBeat back in 2008. And, you know, when I left the San Jose Mercury News to go work at this five-person tech blog, I, I felt like, well, I'm going to write about venture capital. You know, the thing mm -hmm. is called VentureBeat. Yeah. And there isn't any for games, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> and so I expected to not write as much about, you know, the things that I, I loved it so much anymore. But it turns out that games on Facebook exploded that year and game startups just sprouted like crazy, like Zynga was born at, at that time. And they had opportunities to, to bring new things to gaming, like free-to-play business models. Not long after that, then you had the, the iPhone taking off and the app stores becoming a great opportunity for game companies. The game startups became big stories and you know these companies very quickly became as famous as some of the older companies we also figured out that there was a strong community there and we started doing events for venture and game speed and those events eventually became the way you know we had a real business model ourselves and, mm -hmm. and we survived as a small media company we're still independent today and we put on you know several events a year under this GameSpeed Summit or GameSpeed Next sort of moniker. And 
we try to view the people in the game industry, the business to business people as our community. Our next event's coming up October 24th, 25th in San Francisco. And that part of the coverage for me has been sort of the most gratifying thing of maybe the last 15 years is that we bring these people together very often. And then we also wind up writing about them over and over again. And that, uh, you know, there's just a, a strong community, you know, some of them have not been successful and some of mm-hmm. them has been, you know, extremely successful. It's nice to see companies that we covered when they were infants, like Roblox, uh, gigantic public companies now. So for folks on the B2B side, like myself, mm-hmm. you know, obviously these conferences are mm-hmm. not only important from a professional side, but you know, also to your point, they're just like an enjoyable place to be from a personal side. And so me, you know, given my age, I grew up watching E3, you know, basically every single year. And when I joined the industry, you know, it was pandemic times, so there was no E3. And then E3 was supposed to come back. I was very excited to go. And then unfortunately it was canceled. And then it's sort of up in the air. But that has given more room for some other conferences to sort of take off, right? And so GamesBeat Summit or, or GamesBeat Next, some people think it could potentially help fill that gap left by E3. Is that a like strategic thought of yours mm-hmm. or is it just more of a, a happy coincidence? Well, when we have delusions of grandeur, we think our, <laughs> our 900 person conference could very well replace the 50,000 person E3. <laughs> but, uh, you know, in, in some ways, you know, I guess the challenge for E3 was that it became so big that you mm-hmm. kind of almost got lost in it or didn't know what it was mm-hmm. anymore. And I, I think that helped it sort of wind up where people just couldn't figure out exactly what to do to do there. And it sort of dissipated during the uh, pandemic. But we do hope that this whole stepchild business of the games industry goes away mm-hmm. and people have sort of looked down on it and not looked at it as equals. I think that is probably still something that's true in, in the world of business, right? And that mm-hmm. uh, even though games are the biggest entertainment industry yeah. by far, other forms of entertainment are viewed as more established or artistic. Mm-hmm. And there's other technologies people view as more important and yeah, I think that there's still progress to be made on this front. You know, I, I do worry that gaming as a culture still has some negative mm. uh, artifacts to it. The subculture, you know, uh, had things like misogyny, yeah. toxicity that were sort of uh, part of it for a long time. And that has been hard to shake as we sort of export gaming as a subculture upward into world culture. You know, we don't want those things to, to stick around. And so we think, you know, it, it should change and uh, change for the better. And I think that timing is, is right about now. Like mm-hmm. we need to address these things now because because gaming is going into that stratosphere yeah. with things like The Last of Us on HBO, mm-hmm. you know, the Super Mario Brothers movie bringing in more than a billion dollars. You know, other things like Squid Game now being yeah. turned into into real games, mm-hmm. right? I, I do think that, you know, we, we've got, say, work to do or the game industry has work to do. And then I think de- depicting it in the right way is important as well. And so that's one of the jobs for the media. Yeah, actually, this is a topic I've talked about uh, with several guests in different episodes. So I just want to sort of double click here. So given your sort of vantage point and how long you've been covering the industry, on the cultural side, how has the industry changed over time? And in your opinion, 
do you think the pace of improvement, if any, is sort of faster than you would have expected, slower than you would have expected? How do you think about that generally? Some things have happened a lot lot slower than I, mm-hmm. I expected. I, I think the whole wave of rebellion that came against things like diversity as a result of Gamergate mm-hmm. are not that old. Like, I mean, Gamergate happened in 2014, mm-hmm. and it was a very sort of regressive movement that wanted to bring the good old days back. But, mm-hmm. you know, those weren't good old days for a lot of people, right. people of color, women, other types of people. And so embracing change has happened a lot slower than I thought it would. I I thought we would leave some of these things behind Mm -hmm. by now uh, because it makes so much sense to be more inclusive. If if you're inclusive, you have a a more diverse game audience. You have more diverse uh, people wanting to go become game developers. I think that kind of progress still has to be made. And if you make games for the whole world, make games for everybody and don't leave anybody out, Uh, then your market becomes bigger. Your Mm -hmm. opportunities become bigger. You don't dumb down your games. You still have a way to balance both sort of accessibility and skill. And so certain kinds of games that we love from the old days are not going to go away. They're still going to be around. They're just going to be playable for everybody in different ways. And then that improves, you know, the whole cycle or the ecosystem you get better games right Mm -hmm. you have if games reach more people more people buy them you get better games and and so all this money gets reinvested in making games better for everybody and so why is the diversity part a bad thing i don't understand the negative reaction to it hopefully as an industry we'll be able to move past some of these things but you know on the more positive side obviously Given you've been in this industry for so long, you know, gaming is obviously something that you love, not just from a professional standpoint, but also a personal standpoint. So what are some of the games that you have played throughout your life uh, that have been like the most impactful to you and the most memorable for you? I certainly love Naughty Dog's games, the Uncharted series, and I think my favorite game of, there's a tie between my favorite games between The Last of Us and The Last of Us Part Two. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I love both those games. Mm-hmm. and. I've played a lot of shooter titles. I play Call of Duty every year. Mm -hmm. During the pandemic, I played a lot of uh, Warzone. And then I also like a lot of military strategy games. So Mm -hmm. uh, whenever any new real-time strategy games come out or uh, also games like, say, Dune Spice Wars uh, just came out. I I love those kinds of games. I'm not so skillful at Mm -hmm. a lot of things out there, like people who discovered with the my poor play of Cuphead. Uh, (laughs) So platformers are not necessarily something that I'm good at, but uh, I have enjoyed playing them over time with my kids. Yeah, so actually one one of the few Mm -hmm. criticisms that you have received as a journalist over time (laughs) is your alleged maybe lack of skill in certain games. You know, there's this famous Cuphead video. I've actually played Call of Duty with you and I thought you were perfectly competent. (laughs) <laughs> but do you, do you mind just explaining what happened during that Cuphead video? Uh-huh. This is actually a discussion that I've seen around your reviews specifically. So I want to hear your opinion on this. Should uh-huh. journalists have to have a certain level of skill to review games? What mm-hmm. do you think about that? The answer to that question is yes. Of <laughs> course, you should have some competence at playing games if mm-hmm. you're going to review them. And the more games that you play or the more you know, you know the better context you have for mm-hmm reviewing something and saying like, hey, this is better than The Last of Us or mm-hmm. 
but I do think, you know, there were some things that were fair about the criticism mm -hmm. uh, that taught me some new things mm -hmm. about what people expect. I also thought there are some things where, okay, you know, I do know how to play games. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've described the games that I'm sort of better at, right? Mm -hmm. It's like if this was a shooter game, I would actually know what to do right off mm -hmm. the bat. Whereas a platform game like this, I would actually have to learn it. I'd have yeah. to remember and sort of memorize that, hey, this button will cause that to happen. Mm -hmm. And then I went to Gamescom. I had 25 minutes with Microsoft. They said, here's your demo mm -hmm. and handed me the controller when I, when I walked in and, uh, you know, uh, there wasn't much preparation I had for that. And so I walked into this plane at cold and did a very poor job. It took me a while to understand, like, say, jumping on top of these things would not mm -hmm. smash them like uh, <laughs> you do in Mario. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. And, and there were even some things that were slightly, say, deceptive where like, if you did a, a jump and a dash, I still don't think I would have cleared the pillar Mm -hmm. that was in the tutorial, even though it said you should do that. And so it took me a while to figure out, okay, if I actually jump and dash, it will go in a straight line and you will actually go over the pillar instead of run right into it. I felt like that was a slightly the same thing about the graphics I was seeing, I guess. Mm -hmm. Other things I think were perfectly appropriate. I mean, probably didn't need to post that video. <laughs> I went back and one of my colleagues said, oh, it'll be funny. Just <laughs> post it and, you know, but instead of finding it funny, we found that people were getting very angry. Yeah. Uh, there was a guy on social media who also politicized it and said, basically, oh, hey, uh, look, game journalists <laughs> just uh, are unqualified to do their jobs. Uh, they're gatekeepers and, yeah. you know, we, the people just need to get rid of them and uh, <laughs> uh, take on this, this business of reviewing games ourselves. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I mm -hmm. think that trend has gotten only stronger in terms of creators just really, you know, taking over a lot of the sort of taste-making landscape. You know, that's appropriate and good that they can, you know, make a living doing this now. And I, I think that's wonderful. I think everybody should get paid to play games. I think it's also worth understanding that they can focus on the games that they want to play and they can play nothing but that game. Right for the whole year and mm -hmm. um, show people how good they can get at it. Whereas game journalists, by the nature of our jobs, right. you know, we're moving on to a new game e either every week or every two weeks. And that's for the people who review them all the time. Yeah. Whereas, you know, my job is mostly not doing that. It's mostly mm -hmm. just writing about business stories mm -hmm. in the game industry. So yeah, I, I did think that there's some things that were fair and unfair. I did think that the message I always wanted to get across during mm -hmm. that whole thing was that nobody should be ashamed yeah how poorly they play mm -hmm. because we all start out you know in that that state where you have the controller in your hand and you don't know what to mm -hmm. do that. and only by playing it over and over again can you get good at it and then only a handful of us get good at it enough to show the rest of the world right. how, how we play I did get some sympathy <laughs> with people during that whole experience when they said, you know, yeah, I, I've always been embarrassed about how I play <laughs> as well. And I think that, you know, that's one of the things that's intimidating or wrong mm -hmm. about the game industry and makes it less accessible. Yeah, I mean, I personally thought the video was entertaining and mm -hmm. should have been harmless. But yeah, you bring up a good point, right? Like gamers, for better or worse, are one of the most passionate fan bases out there, right? whenever a new game comes out whenever there's like a big gameplay video whatever you're gonna have people you know who are willing to fight you to the death talking about how it's the best thing ever 
you have people on the other side ready to fight you to the death saying like this is the worst thing ever and whoever created this you know should bad things should happen to them so yeah. <laughs> you know I, I agree with you i think overall and just uh, ahead of them on on the passion are the game developers right oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like they're as uh, fiercely opinionated about their games as anybody else too. exactly so yeah, I think we need to, to give journalists a, a bit less flack. Another uh, interesting point that you brought up was on, on creators, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, over the years, particularly because of Twitch, but obviously there's other platforms as well, a lot more gamers, just in general, not necessarily like professional gamers or anything like that, have been able to stream to different audiences and in some cases monetize these audiences. But that said, a lot of the actual monetization in the space has accrued to like an extremely small number of people, right? Like a very small number of people make almost all the money on these platforms. I'm just curious, given you are a creator yourself, what do you think about this? Do you think that there should be some ways or tools for sort of your lay person creator to monetize their talents in the gaming industry? Or do you think this is ultimately just like a hobby that unfortunately some folks won't be able to? Mm -hmm. I do think that it feels similar to esports in that only the top tiny, you know, half of a half percent of mm -hmm. people are so good that uh, they make it into esports teams. And uh, it's, it's a little sad because uh, so many people aspire to, to, to do that. Yes. It's just millions or billions of people who mm -hmm. really want to have that as their, their job, but they're, they're not good enough. And I think the ones who are successful as creators, they, they also realize what they, they have to, to be is not only good at, at these games, but entertaining yeah. as well. Mm -hmm. And that's a pretty high, high bar because yeah. you know, we get so much entertainment that our, our bar for you know, watching amateurs um, is, is so high. Mm -hmm. right? And so I, I think that it is helpful to see, say, some democratization happen so that, you know, you don't have to be a super technical yeah. uh, wizard in order to just be a creator. And now you can do it so much more easily with the tools that are, are out there. And so just like game development is getting democratized, it's, it's nice to see, say, being a creator getting democratized. And I would mm -hmm. be happy more people were able to get attention and get noticed and, and make a living. I, I don't know how far down that's going to push it's the same way with something like roblox you know they have 65 million people visiting them every day but in all of their like their history only 8 million players have created their own game on top of roblox with things like ai coming in such a big way and affecting every part of the industry i think we're going to get a ton of user generated games that come on the order of 10 or a hundred or a thousand times more yeah. than what we get today. Some people will make it big that way. And that'll, that'll be great for them now because you know, they, they have ideas. Normally they can't execute on those ideas mm -hmm. because they, they don't know game development, but AI could help them get through that uh, mm -hmm. and get their ideas into execution easier and faster. And I, I think the same thing would happen with creators as well. Mm -hmm. More, more people can become creators and you do want a society to gravitate towards what's best yeah really whether it's esports or it's games themselves or creators i think we're always going to have very successful few at the top and a pyramid uh, going down so 
follow-up on AI, actually probably a few follow-ups, but the first one, obviously this AI thing is having a huge impact on a number of different industries. And then within gaming, a number of different aspects of the industry. One of which you wrote about recently, GamesBeat and VentureBeat recently had to lay off some folks. This is something that we've seen sort of all throughout the gaming industry and all throughout the media industry, but obviously something given your profession, I'm sure it's especially close to home. So, you know, given the impact AI could potentially have on just journalism in general, and given the pace at how fast the technology is improving and how much money is going into the space, from your vantage point, what does the future of sort of your industry look like when there is this potential threat in AI? And could you also talk about the other side of it where these AI tools could actually potentially improve the industry? I think that there's two parts to what we do. Like we have the events business and then we have the, the media business mm-hmm. really. And they are linked together. I mean, uh, a lot of the the people that I interview for the media wind up being speakers at the events, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but the events business saw this sort of crazy seesaw happen, you know, with the onset of the pandemic yeah. in 2020. And we had to cancel an event that uh, was coming up in just nine weeks. But instead of totally cancel it, what we did was we shifted it to become a virtual event. Mm -hmm. And this online event actually worked out really well. And during the pandemic, that was the only kind of thing you could do Mm -hmm. and still feel like you're gathering with people of like mind. Mm -hmm. And so we started doing more of these events a year. They were cheaper to do and a little easier to organize than in-person events. And so that worked for a while until until everything shifted again and we got our vaccines and every, everybody started going back out into the real world. And so, you know, we had to scramble to like cancel a, an online event and mm. then look how we could shift uh, to an in-person event. Mm-hmm. And we find out all, all of the hotels all of a sudden are all booked up yeah. there or have raised their prices dramatically. <laughs> and so that has affected, you know, our business and, you know, just, you know, the ups and downs of that have explain why like we had some recent layoffs that they weren't really due to things on the media side on, right. on, and AI, but those impacts can expect that they will come as well. Mm-hmm. I think then you have the bar sort of going up again mm-hmm. in terms of what kind of quality you need to produce uh, because you know, one skill was really taking a press release and writing a story based Mm -hmm. on it that is just more like a normal thing somebody wants to read because most people don't want to read press releases, Mm -hmm. right? If you um, run that through a decent story creator and then you use that as your foundation, then you can build upon Mm -hmm. what uh, the automated solution can do. You can talk to more people right? And Mm -hmm. you can throw in more context than they've included. You can sort of make it a more interesting writing style than the base that you start with. And I'm pretty sure then that you wind up with something, you know, your own and something that's unique and something that may be more readable to other people out there. And so you can probably get to that faster as well, Mm -hmm. uh, thanks to the AI. And Let me ask you a question for my curiosity. So pretty much every, you know, if you want to call it breaking news story in the gaming venture business is covered by you in some capacity. How are you writing all of these articles this quickly? Is there a secret Uh Dean AI that, that we should know about? 
Well, you know, they're not all written by me. We have a team of four people and we all have different expertise. Mine is probably more in the, the game startup space. Mm -hmm. And Mike Minotti, as an example, is an encyclopedic uh, mm -hmm. sort of game player, like plays everything and he can review mm -hmm. just about everything too. Uh, whereas I don't get to play nearly as many games because mm -hmm. I'm very busy writing yeah. all these other game startup stories. And mm -hmm. so like we try to cover just about every game startup that happens in some way around the world. And we don't hit that goal, but, you know, we do what we can and we just sort of cut it off for the day at some point. And I think that when you sort of make that commitment to saying, hey, I'm going to cover the game industry mm -hmm. and I'm also going to cover what's changing and I'm going to cover the startups that, that are in this space, then you sort of realize, wow, that's actually a very big commitment. <laughs> and so we get a lot of information in advance, mm -hmm. right? People tell us, hey, this is uh, going to be news in two weeks. We'll do an interview with you during that time and get you all the materials uh, so that you can publish on the sort of the minute that the uh, news gets announced. And mm -hmm. we call those embargoed stories. And mm -hmm. um, we do a, a lot of those. And that's how, say, I could publish 10 stories in one day mm -hmm. quite often. Is that because a lot of them have been written sometime before that or the work has been done before that. I wind up writing a lot at night as well. Mm -hmm. I find my head is more clear mm -hmm. when I haven't been bouncing around from uh, interview to interview to, to do writing. But yeah, at, at some point, there's way more than I can cover. I, I think we also want to take the initiative to do more original work that is mm -hmm. sort of based on press releases as well. And those involve, you know, different kinds of things that are, you know, controversies in the industry or things that everybody's talking about. So, mm -hmm. so like uh, Unity, they set themselves on fire with mm -hmm. a, a press release about their price increases and didn't necessarily explain them so well or think about all the consequences of what would happen from this price increase. And it became a bigger and bigger story yeah. uh, because more and more people were complaining in some way. And, you know, they had boycott letters signed by more than 600 game companies. Mm -hmm. And that all happened within one week. We did like three stories on it. That's driven more by the agenda of what you have to tell people about as opposed to somebody's sort of idea for a press release. As the gaming industry has evolved and expanded so much, you, you know, you've sort of held the position of being a journalist while throughout the years, so many more roles have come up, you know, a lot more money has flown in space, et cetera. Were you ever tempted to explore any of the other areas of the gaming industry from a professional standpoint, or were you always set on being a journalist within the industry throughout the years? Well, I was originally inspired to get into the industry because of things like Watergate. Journalism was viewed as a respectable profession at a, at a time when it was challenging authority in the world. And so I always felt like it was this honorable thing to do. And I like it, all the variety you get with it. I like how this belief in diversity turns out to be absolutely real when it comes to doing a better job at journalism mm -hmm. by talking to more people yeah. who have different perspectives, right? And it's, it's such a clear benefit to the job uh, to be able to talk to more people. And I, I thought about say, well, should I go work at a certain company? There was one very big company that said, hey, you know, the CEO kind of likes talking to you because mm -hmm. you talk to other people mm -hmm. and he doesn't get that chance, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. And so in some ways, 
if you make a choice to go and it's perfectly a good choice a lot of my peers have gone into companies uh, mm-hmm. to work for them like in in pr or marketing but i felt like it would be you know sad to to lose that access to almost everybody out there mm-hmm. you can talk to i think originally wanted to get into writing because i wanted to write novels right mm-hmm. and it turns out that journalism turned out to be something close to it, but it was, mm-hmm. you know, written about real things. And if I ever thought about shifting to write novels, I, the thing that stopped me from doing that was, well, am I any good at it? Mm-hmm. Right. And so like, I know I'm good at this journalism thing. Mm-hmm. And the more I focus on it, the better I can get. Yeah. Whereas writing novels and switching to something brand new that's untested. I'd rather do something I know that I, I can do really well to pretend that I, I could easily learn to do something else. Well, you know, that's for an old man like me. <laughs> that's that's a, that's a delusion. Right? Mm-hmm. So, but I do get some interesting joys out of this job that, you know, weren't really part of the original description of a journalist either. Like mm-hmm. I do regularly introduce entrepreneurs to investors. I don't charge for this, but since I know so many investors, I see that some of these ideas are really fascinating. Mm -hmm. And uh, if they tell me they're looking for money or they've never talked to any investors, then I can happily sort of make those introductions Mm -hmm. and and write about them when they they have an agreement uh, (laughs) to announce that they've raised some money or something. So I feel like lucky in that I I found a a good place for me to be. Mm -hmm. uh, So I like that's always kept me uh, doing what I do. So over the last few years, you know, there's been AI, blockchain, metaverse, AR, VR. There's been a number of trends within gaming that were supposed to change the world. You know, the jury's still out on many of these. So I'm not going to ask you necessarily to take an opinion on these today. But given your vantage point, having covered the industry for so long, what are some trends throughout the years that you have covered that have seen a lot of hype and that have either outperformed your expectations or underperformed your expectations? I think a, a, a lot of them. I can remember when Riot Games was getting started with League of Legends mm-hmm. and was entering and creating a new game in this genre of you know, multiplayer online battle arenas, MOBAs. Mm-hmm. And so everybody then started creating MOBAs and it turned out that there was only one MOBA. (laughs) (laughs) League of Legends uh, scooped up uh, all of the customers and all of the money and everybody else failed. You know, there may be a new opportunity there, but still back when this was happening, uh, everybody thought that MOBAs were going to be this fantastic, gigantic trend and Mm -hmm. it it didn't materialize in, in the way that they thought because sort of grand master of them fended off all of the competition. And we have other things like cloud gaming that mm-hmm. I think still have potential, but uh, you know have never knocked it out of the park mm-hmm. in the same way and become a, a larger part of the industry as as they expected. It's probably like more like a good niche right now for games like say Microsoft Flight Simulator that enlisted the cloud in providing all of that flight data and mm-hmm. Earth data that you can see when you fly over different parts of the world. I do think that there's more sort of of that to come and more successful come there, but it didn't live up to what everybody expected in the game industry. I mean, mm-hmm. I, it did turn into something much bigger than 
what analysts were forecasting in terms of cloud technology for mm-hmm. the world and uh, tech companies, but not so much in games. There's VR, you know, uh, definitely it's a good $20 billion business, but everybody expected it to be a $150 billion mm-hmm. business by now, eight years later or so. And mm-hmm. that didn't happen. So success is like a relative thing that you can think about, like, are these things failures because they only became a certain size and they didn't become as, as big as uh, what everybody wanted them to be. I think Metaverse, I think it did get overhyped when everybody was starting to say it's going to change everything. And so like we would have a $5 trillion Metaverse yeah. industry by you know, 2030, as McKinsey predicted. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it, it is in sort of something that will be on the radar for years to come everywhere, you know, showed off a very metaverse like trailer, Mm -hmm. you know, that looks like a lot of fun. I think the metaverse dream of creating something like the Star Trek holodeck where you can snap your fingers and the world changes is still alive as a dream and that nobody has really done snow crash right Mm -hmm. uh, as well from Neil Stevenson, the the guy who coined the term Mm -hmm. metaverse. I think there's still potential there, but you know, sometimes that's my science fiction self Mm -hmm. that's talking, right? Uh, One of the things I I love to do is sort of look at the intersection of science fiction, tech and games Mm -hmm. and see all the crossover that, that happens now, like to see Neil Stevenson himself working on a blockchain game startup is very inspiring in some ways, right? I think that the game industry always has so many things going on at the Mm -hmm. same time. Some of the hyped trends will grab a piece of that business, but they never tend to take over everything. Mm -hmm. What are some of the games or game genres that you're most excited about? It can be either professionally or personally. Mm -hmm. And then just curious to hear your thoughts on extraction. It seems like extraction shooters have been getting a lot of attention. I always thought that was interesting because to date, there's only a few games that have actually had decent success with an extraction shooter, but it does seem like a lot of people think it's like the next big thing. So curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I think that even within the shooter business, we have seen a lot of change and evolution and you know, that whole battle royale sort of adoption that I mentioned. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I didn't really play a lot of uh, PUBG at first. Yeah. I felt like the guns felt a bit unfamiliar and different to me. And it was, say, more realistic than I was used to. And yet when Call of Duty adopted some of these the, the same modes, then it was something I was already familiar with. Mm-hmm. I could play Call of Duty and you know, do okay in it and be be somewhat competitive enough to play with other people. And then I felt like that absorption of the innovation <laughs> by an established company that really helped. So like making it mainstream enough for me to play is I think something that's always important for the game developers to to think about and like the, to keep evolving what they're doing so that more and more people can play something and you know, like I, I used to go to a lot of trouble to play strategy games, mm. uh, military games on maps with little paper tiles, uh, mm. cardboard tiles <laughs> that you moved around on a map in the physical world. And making that so much easier to do now with, say, digital strategy games mm-hmm. uh, just widens the, the potential audience for it. And so, like, I do like it when these things I like get that sort of mainstream treatment. Mm-hmm. Those are a lot of the games that I remember more or gravitate to or just get obsessed with. And so, like, when Warzone made it 
it's so easy to find other people to play with and to, to talk and to strategize uh, while you're playing that became sort of the best sort of form of that game for me i like the style and the, it was very different from things like fortnite and PUBG. Yeah. it fit me better my most favorite games are, are things that tell a good story like the i guess the the bookend storytelling where something happens at the beginning of The Last of Us that reminds you of the very last scenes of, of The Last of Us and explain sort of the connection and why the ending turns out to be the way it is. I think, you know, that's brilliant storytelling. To see that in games is just extremely gratifying because they didn't start in that space of the outstanding storytelling. Mm -hmm. Just to wrap things up here, so you've been in the industry for a long time. You've seen many changes. You've impacted it in your own way. But going forward, what else do you want to accomplish? And if you think about it at all, what do you ultimately want your legacy to be on this industry? I feel really old because you only <laughs> asked that of people who are <laughs> But, uh, you know, I do try to... Uh, get to higher and higher quality stories, even while I'm still spread pretty thin covering mm -hmm. everything that happens. And uh, uh, to be able to tell a good story that uh, no one else has told and to, uh, you know, tell it in a way that reflects, you know, good thinking and good writing. I, I love doing that. And so, you know, doing one more of those or doing a hundred more of those or a thousand, you know, I don't, I don't know where it is like I feel like you know it's quite possible I would just drop dead doing this job <laughs> but I do hope also that there are people that can look at what I do and try to do it better and when I see people doing it better I don't necessarily feel super jealous like oh man you know they do it better than I do. Mm -hmm. I get a bit more excited that, hey, this profession is not going away. I'm not the last person doing it. I'm not the only person who cares about it. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of other, you know, talented writers out there in the world that can either get inspired by other people or inspired by what I do. And I'm glad to be able to make more of them reach their dreams. Mm -hmm. And so some future form of the job, I think, combines all of these things that I like, the, the community, the writing, mm -hmm. the sort of peer networks that arise and the ability to help others, whatever part of their journey they're sort of on, whether it's the, the biggest companies trying to communicate what their intentions are, sometimes unsuccessfully, like Unity, or the, the smallest of uh, folks who are just trying to get started and mm -hmm. enjoy all that. And it doesn't necessarily point me to anything that I need to wind up doing or change to or otherwise get done. I've written some books already, so I've kind of done that already. And I, mm -hmm. I don't necessarily always feel that I need to do more of that. Well, I will continue to follow you and will continue to read your, your articles going forward, of course. But I just wanted to say thanks for taking the time. This has been a great conversation. Thank you, Chris.